service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about goalkeeper Bruno Fernandez de Sousa are insane. He had a front row seat to the showtime world of Brazilian soccer, a world with an endless array of parties and sex workers. He denied he was the father of a child when he was named in a paternity suit. When the mother of that child wouldn't stop talking to the police and the press, he had her kidnapped. And then he had her brutally murdered. And then... He had her body chopped up into little pieces. Before he went full Tommy DeVito, Bruno Fernandez de Sousa was part of some of the greatest moments in sports history. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Great Future in Plastics, MK2. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights from ESPN of a broadcast of Brazil's 1-0 win over Costa Rica in the FIFA U-20 World Cup. And why would I play you that specific slice of JV cheese could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest moments in sports on October 13, 2009. And that was the day a police complaint was filed alleging that Bruno Fernandes de Sousa held a pregnant woman at gunpoint and told her to get rid of her unborn baby. On this episode, sex parties, paternity lawsuits, kidnappings, cold-blooded murder, and Bruno Fernandez de Sousa. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 6, Sportsland. Slums were the last thing on his mind. Shanty towns, favelas, layer cakes of brick, concrete, and reinforced steel. The one he used to call home, it was some 300 miles away. But it wasn't just physically distant, it was mentally distant too. He didn't even want to think about it, because he was here now in Rio de Janeiro, moving forward. This wasn't street soccer, this was Flamingo. Not just a soccer club, but the biggest soccer club in all of Brazil practically its own nation. 
And on May 27, 2010, it didn't matter if Flamingo lost the match against their rival, Fluminense, because they didn't get shut out. He wouldn't let them. Even when his team lost, he made sure they were respected. In the 90th minute of play, the final minute of play, he took his free kick, a high looping blast over the wall of players that shot into the upper corner of the net. The shot was good, his fourth career goal. The shot might not have been so impressive if he was a striker. Instead, that fourth career goal made him the highest scoring goalkeeper in his club's history. The home crowd cheered for him. They cheered in the massive stadium, more than 80,000 people. They cheered for him in the chic beach bars down by Ipanema, in the packed clubs of Lava, and they cheered for him in the alleys surrounding the TV's jerry-rigged to satellite dishes in the favelas, the ones he knew all too well that stretched up the steep hills above Rio and Guanabara Bay. But even though he was born Bruno Fernandez de Sousa, the fans cheered him on with one simple name, Bruno. You heard that one name, and you knew you were headed directly for that gold-plated pantheon of Brazilian soccer legends, like Pele, Socrates, Ronaldo, Romario before him. He was becoming a legend. He was becoming simply Bruno. He knew he'd have to prove himself worthy of that designation. He was already on the cusp of being chosen for the Brazilian national team as their goalkeeper. He had the talent. He just had to keep his temper and his big head under control. And then he had to get out of Brazil. The world loved a Brazilian superstar, but nobody respected Brazilian leagues with their corrupt teams and failing finances. He had to get to Europe, play in a powerhouse like AC Milan, who was already interested. And if he did that, suddenly he'd be looked at differently by the national team back home. He would be the man with the brass attitude, the golden hands, and the one name. It was better than the alternative. Better than what happened to his mother, off somewhere shooting guns and snorting coke or his father a thief, constantly in handcuffs. Even his long-lost brother was a magnet to men with badges. It was hard to avoid a similar fate in Ribeiro, with its high crime and its two penitentiaries that reminded you every day where you would probably end up. Gracias a Deus, there was soccer. He played amateur leagues, and then onto the huge capital of Minas Gerais State, home to three million people, a place close enough to home, but large enough that you could lose your old life and reinvent yourself. Professional clubs, the Brazilian championship, the national under-20 team, and then Flamengo came calling, just like you'd intended all along. You worked hard and willed it into reality, even if they said you were arrogant, even if they called you a hothead. At Flamengo, Bruno let his playing do the talking, and for three years, he kept getting better and better, developing his trademark skill at scoring goals with free kicks. A goalkeeper who could score at will? Incredible. At long last, the cash was rolling in. Bruno married his childhood girlfriend, Dayani, and they had two girls and bought a ranch. He flaunted his new regal status by hosting the annual Bruno Cup, a competition for amateur teams that donated food baskets and money to his old neighborhoods in need. The charity was all well and good, but he made sure to arrive by plane and wave to the adoring masses like some descending deity. After all, he'd earned it. And then in 2009, he reached the peak of his Brazilian career. He was named captain of Flamengo and wound up winning the Brazilian championship. He hoisted the cup in triumph at the awards party afterwards, his teammates hollering all around him. For a moment, it felt like he could get no higher. But there was a catch. He was also nominated as best goalkeeper in the championship. 
That particular reward eluded him. What the fuck was this? A consolation trophy? A backhanded compliment? It was disrespectful. He wouldn't accept it. He felt that familiar thorn dig into his side. Respect. He needed it. He demanded it. Even though his attitude and antics nearly turned into dreaded own goals on numerous occasions, and even though he argued with coaches and other players, but it was all about the game. It was all about winning. The real problems, they arose when Bruno's judgment off the pitch was questioned. In July 2008, he hosted a party at his ranch. He brought in a bunch of sex workers for his teammates to enjoy. And then one of those assholes had to go and hit a girl when she wouldn't have sex without a condom. Motherfucker cost Bruno 20% of his pay that month when the story went public. And then, he had to admit to the press that the whole scandal was making his marriage a mess. He wanted people on his side, sure, but now he had to grovel to get back into good standing. Money, respect. He never forgot that everything he did was all surface, like fresh laid sod on a dry dirt pitch. Bruno was thinking about all this as he basked briefly in his goal in the final minute of the game against Fluminense. But there was hardly any time to celebrate. Flamingo lost 2-1. Another lackluster loss in a season that had been a harsh comedown from the championship the year before. Bruno knew he hadn't been playing his best. He'd been distracted and angry by yet another bad decision off the field. One that clouded his eyes and darkened his mind. It threatened to derail everything. As he walked off the field, he had no way of knowing it would be one of the last games he'd play for Brazil's biggest team. In just a few weeks, he'd have more to worry about than a crushing defeat. He'd be face to face with real life's foulest penalty, ejected from the game he loved and the fame he craved because real life would deal him a red card, a card as red as pools of freshly spilled blood. music was loud, so loud she couldn't even hear herself think. She felt like the beats and bass were actually pushing her around the house. She smiled coyly at one soccer player and bit her lip at another, laughed at what seemed to be a joke, but who the fuck knew? She could barely hear a damn thing about the pulse of the noise, but no one was here for small talk. No one was here to listen. The pulsating lights revealed bodies grinding on the dance floor, soccer players and the women who loved them or at least the women invited and paid to show up to love them. It was no secret that in just about every room in this house, beyond this dance floor, people were fucking. It was also no secret that soon it would be her turn. It always seemed to be her turn, even if all she really wanted was to get ahead on her own terms. But when you're pretty and alone and 24 years old in Rio and you're trying to make it on your own in the entertainment world, you seize your chances whenever and however they arrive, or you let them seize you even when those chances didn't go according to plan. Then again, not much ever went according to plan for Elisa Samugio. Her parents split when she was young. She didn't even see her mother anymore. Hundreds of miles from Rio, she dreamed of becoming an actress and a model, like her idol, Giselle Bunchen. So when she turned 18, she left. She had no contacts, no money. She was beautiful, however, a thick mane of black hair regal cheekbones, robust curves, and hourglass waist. Megawatt's smile like a blinder room as well. 
Fashion shows and photo shoots came in slowly, a little slower than she hoped. The faster money came from selling her body to people who wanted to use it. She agreed to shoot pornographic films that combined any position, partner, or fetish the producers required, as long as she could keep her involvement a secret. To the porn industry, she was not Elisa Samagio, but instead used a nom de porn. After all, Elisa Samagio may have needed the money, but she also needed to maintain some respect for herself. She was led to believe that the fancy soccer parties were respectful, the kind that a beautiful model with a familiar face from adult entertainment could easily get invited to. As long as you agreed to take your turn in one of the bedrooms when the time came. It was all part of the deal of meeting the right people or the ones who you told yourself were the right people. May 2009, Rio. Word at this house party was that Bruno was looking to get with Elisa. Bruno, the handsome, brooding flamingo goalkeeper, the one whose scowl could break out into a toothy grin. He was going places, maybe even to play in Europe. But right now, he wasn't going anywhere. He wanted to be here, with her. He was charming, charismatic. Didn't matter that he was married. In the player's eyes, sex at these parties was meaningless. Party sex was nothing but a good time. A little fun between consenting adults. No strings attached. Like so many other things in Elisa's life, the night she spent at a soccer player's party did not go as planned. Only after she had sex with Bruno did they realize that the condom broke. Bruno didn't think too much about it. He had other things to worry about, like keeping his subsequent meetups with Elisa a secret from his wife, or keeping his relationship with the third woman secret from the other two. It was bad enough that the notorious party with sex workers at his ranch was putting unprecedented strain on his marriage. Now, he had this. Elisa was pregnant. She knew the baby was Bruno's. It had to be. The timing was right. She could link it back to that night at the house party in the broken condom. Bruno was having none of it. In Bruno's mind, it was just party sex, meaningless, and she was nothing but a whore who fucked for money in his eyes. That baby belonged to somebody else, probably someone with less money and probably someone with less fame. If she insisted on walking around and saying the baby was his, that she needed to get rid of it. Now. Elisa didn't want to get rid of it. Abortion was a one-way ticket to prison in Brazil. Even more, she actually wanted the child. She didn't need Bruno to do that, but she did need money. By August, only three months after they first met, Elisa sued Bruno for paternity and child support. And then just as fast, things got really ugly. October 13, 2009. Elisa Samogio was in her second trimester, five months pregnant. They call it the honeymoon period because it's a time when many of the early unpleasant symptoms of pregnancy subside. You get your energy back, and you sleep better. But Elisa Samogia wasn't sleeping, and this didn't feel like a honeymoon either. Far from it. She tried to give her statement to the Rio police calmly. There were bruises around her eyes. She shook as she spoke. She said the father of her unborn child did it. Bruno. Yes, that Bruno. She alleged that he grabbed her, threw her into his car. Two of his friends were there with him. This one guy they called Spaghetti. They took her to Bruno's apartment and they beat her. Bruno held a gun to her head, that cold look in his eyes, the one she didn't recognize. And then she alleged that Bruno and his friends forced her to take a drug that medically induces abortions. When the story hit the press, Bruno flatly denied everything. It's not the first time she's made up a bunch of lies to try to harm me, he said. 
She cannot cope with the fact that I do not want to be in a relationship with her. I will not give this lady the 15 minutes of fame she wants so much. Rio's criminal justice system moves at a grinding pace on the best day. The delay on the results of Elisa's blood test for the abortion-inducing drugs seemed endless. To Elisa, it was wrong and deeply unfair that she was forced to spend her days in fear, wondering how she'd get the money for this child and how she would get the father to accept his responsibility. Bruno tried to focus on the soccer season. There were some high points, such as those two penalty shots he saved against Santos, but there were some low ones as well like that loss where he shoved around and humiliated one of his midfielders for sucking on the field. Off the field, it was even rockier. When one of his teammates got in a fight with his fiance, Bruno defended his buddy by asking, who here hasn't hit his wife? Amid all these distractions, Bruno had one golden ticket in his back pocket, an agreement with AC Milan, the giants of Italian football. By fall, he could be overseas and earning as much as $100,000 monthly. Even the Russian club, Zenot St. Petersburg, was nosing around Flamingo, making noise about big money. The big time was as close as a softly kicked ball arcing toward his fingertips. While Bruno contemplated his future, Elisa gave birth to a healthy baby boy on February 10, 2010 in Sao Paulo. She was staying at a friend's house. She had nowhere else to go. She was in love like never before. Whatever money her friends gave her, which was not much, went directly to the baby but it made no difference to Bruno. No way he was gonna claim that kid. No way he was gonna take the paternity test, especially not with a bright future ahead of him, and especially not when she kept dragging his good name through the press. The same media that was reporting that Elisa was still being threatened by Bruno, that she was back visiting the police, that she was telling them things she claimed he said to her, things like, you don't know me, you don't know what I'm capable of. I'm from the favela. Bruno meant it he would show Elisa exactly what he was capable of, what his Rottweilers were capable of too. Elisa Samogio couldn't tell where she was. It felt like she'd been in this house for days. Wherever it was, her head was swollen and her body ached. She was covered in scrapes and bruises. The pain wasn't any better than it was before. If anything, it was worse. She tried to focus her mind, any little piece of information that she could locate in there. She remembered that Bruno's friend Spaghetti picked her up at the hotel room in Rio. That's right, the hotel room. It all started to come back to her like the faint light in this dim room. Bruno had rented a suite for her and her baby boy at the Transamerica Hotel. The place was luxurious, and she was grateful to have a place where she could do the work that she really wanted to do. Not the ongoing paternity suit or talking to anyone in the media who would listen, but simply getting to be a new mother loving her new child in a quiet, clean, and comfortable space. Even more, the hotel gave her a glimmer of hope. Perhaps Bruno was softening, getting ready to acknowledge his son. He was starting to send her a little money to help her and the boy get by. Spaghetti was paying her expenses. It come June 11, 2010, just days away. Well, she and Bruno were due in family court to discuss child support, maybe, just maybe, get him to take that elusive DNA test. All he asked was that she stop talking to the media. And so, when Spaghetti called that afternoon to say that Bruno was ready to give her a generous new payment, she was cautiously optimistic. But there was a catch. The money was all in cash, and it was all at Bruno's ranch, a good eight-hour drive away. 
They'd stop at Bruno's house in Rio first, and yes, of course, she could bring the baby. The plan was set. She was ready. Spaghetti came to pick her up, and then everything went black. And now here she was, her shattered mind trying to make sense of it all. It was all just a trick. Bruno was never going to settle. Bruno had his life, and that was never going to be her life. Her son would never be his son. He baited Elisa with cash and a glimmer of kindness, the same one she saw on the night they first met, and she fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. Suddenly her eyes grew wide. Her son, where was her son, her baby boy? She tried to cry out for him, but her mouth was dry. The pain in her head was too much. It was all too much. Whatever they wanted, they could have it. She was giving up. She wanted her boy to be safe. She managed to get some words out. I can't take being beaten anymore. You're not going to be beaten anymore, came the reply. A cold voice from somewhere near her in the room. You are going to die. She felt something wrapped tightly around her neck. Leather gloves, a cord. She couldn't tell, but it was as cold as the man's voice. She felt the grip tighten. And within seconds, she no longer felt the pain in her head or her eyes or in her bruises scattered throughout her body. All she could feel were the hands crushing her larynx, her trachea, her jugular, whatever the fuck was right there under his death grip. Because that's what this was, a death grip. She tried to struggle, but she was too weak. Her racing mind quieted to one chilling thought. She was going to die. Thankfully, killing the kid was never part of the plan. Bruno's wife, Deani, stashed the baby at a house in the favela, which meant that the man who murdered Elisa would have no distractions while he cleaned things up. And now, they had a dead body on their hands. People would be looking for her soon. He had to make her disappear. This couldn't blow back on Bruno. The man knew exactly what to do. First, find the longest, sharpest knife. Next, cut her up into small pieces and see how hungry Bruno's Rottweilers were, and then bury the rest under concrete. No problem. But there was a problem. As Bruno would find out over the coming months, the problem with murdering someone is other someones, other people. Elisa Samagio was immediately declared missing, and by the end of June, Bruno was a prime suspect. He worked to reinforce the narrative he had presented all along, that she was unfit, probably abandoned her son, and wasn't that a shame? Women go missing every day in Brazil, even models and porn stars. He figured that this, too, would pass over the net, like all the other shots he had to deal with on and off the pitch. But people talk, even the ones who should know better. And the next thing he knew, his cousin, his own fucking flesh and blood, was telling the cops that Elisa had been kidnapped, killed, and cut up. The kid named names, too. First, Spaghetti, then an ex-cop known as Bola, and Bruno himself, the Bruno. Bruno's story about a missing no-name model turned porn star started to look like a lot of bullshit as more friends and family were rounded up by the police. They told their own stories. Someone even let loose that Deani had taken Elisa's boy and hit him in the favela. There are only so many ways you can bat away accusations when they keep coming at you hard and fast. Bruno could hardly keep up. Now the cops wanted him to take a DNA test for their investigation. Elisa couldn't make him take one while she was alive, but... This was different. A front line of relentless attack was pressing him back against the goal line, and Bruno was running out of time and space. And so, on July 7th, when he knew that the cops had enough to arrest him, Bruno let the strikers take their shots. He turned himself in. 
As he fended off all the assaults on his good name, cracks began to show in his wall of denial. He admitted that Elisa Samalgio was indeed at his house, but he had no idea what had happened to her. And then, when enough of those turncoats claimed she was killed, he pleaded ignorance of the plan. He blamed Spaghetti for organizing the kidnapping. The prosecution wasn't buying it, and the lead investigator claimed that not only did Bruno actually plan the whole thing, but he was there the entire time. That was all the Flamingo Soccer Club needed to hear. Bruno was cut for good. Not because he was on trial, because of what team management called repercussions. When you're the biggest in Brazil, you can't suffer any damage to the club's brand and its sponsors, as they put it. Bruno was no longer a football mastermind in the net, but a criminal mastermind in prison. Bola, the ex-cop, got 36 years. Spaghetti was sentenced to 15. And as for Bruno, he was looking at 22 years behind bars. Money, gone. Soccer, gone. Respect. As long as he never told his full side of the story, and as long as Elisa's body was never found, perhaps he could keep a slim margin of respect. Just hours before he was arrested, Bruno and Flamingo had a deal on the table with Zenot St. Petersburg for 8 million euros. It wasn't AC Milan, but it was a big club with big money, and it was Europe. And Europe was the dream. Had always been the dream. He was so close. He literally held it in his hands, the hands that he relied on to make the dream possible. But now, he looked down at those same hands. They were no longer the hands of a soccer player. They no longer held on to a dream. They were clenched in a death grip around a waking nightmare. Rio Branco is almost as far as you can get from Rio de Janeiro. Nearly 4,000 kilometers away, to be exact, way over the other side of the country. There, Rio Branco FC competes in the Serie D Soccer League, which is three levels down from Serie A, three levels down from clubs like Flamingo. You played A-ball and then downshifted to D-ball. You could feel the difference. This was backwater ball. Not that Bruno Fernandes de Sousa was complaining. At least he had his boots on, and at least he was on the pitch, doing the only thing that he knew how to do well. Bruno rocketed a penalty kick high to the upper left-hand corner above the hands of the opposing goalkeeper, and he smiled. The hugs from his teammates came next, and the cheers from the fans. There were fewer of those these days. Fifteen minutes later, he let in a goal, and the match ended in a 1-1 draw. It was October 2020. At this point, Aliza Samagio was a decade dead, yet another victim in a country with one of the highest rates of femicide in the world. And even though they never found her body, she continued to haunt Bruno's name. The results of her blood test were public knowledge. Traces of that drug that induces abortion, they were indeed found, which made Bruno's denial sound less credible year by year. But that's not what Bruno was thinking about now. Instead, he was thinking about how he'd made it back into the game in the first place. He thought it would happen sooner. There was a brief moment in 2017 when a petition of habeas corpus briefly got him released from prison, all because the courts were taking too long to rule on his appeal. So he signed with some crap second division team. Honestly, he'd go with whoever wanted him, and he'd even get a chance to teach kids the game, maybe help some boy like him learn the game to make something of himself. 
but no one wanted the man who had the mother of his unwanted child killed teaching their children anything. Sponsors dropped the team. Bruno only played five games. He was arrested again because, as it turns out, his own lawyers were the ones to blame for the delay in his case. 2020 was different. In 2020, he was in Rio Branco in a limbo status with the prison, able to play soccer, even if the team's only sponsor dropped out, even if the coach of Rio Branco's women's team quit in protest, even if he began play by wearing an ankle bracelet. None of that bothered him, because he was playing. It was all about the game again. But what did bite at him was that he never became Bruno, international superstar goalkeeper, never joined that gold-plated pantheon of Brazilian soccer legends with one name, like Pele and Ronaldo. Instead, other single-name keepers went on to World Cup teams and Champions League glory in Europe, not Bruno. Even worse, a Portuguese midfielder also named Bruno Fernandes became a superstar with Manchester United. Someone else laid claim to his name. No, he was destined to forever be known as Bruno Fernandes de Sousa, the kid from the favela who went on to murder the mother of his child because she got in the way of his becoming Bruno. No money, no respect, not even his own good name. Bruno was back where he started, back to nothing, back to a shantytown existence where your future is already determined where your dreams are already game over. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.